Our guest today is David Pleasance. He currently has a Kickstarter in the form of a new book titled From Vultures to Vampires, 25 Years of Copyright Chaos and Technology Triumph. I think I've got that right, have I, David? Yeah, it's it's in the final days of the campaign at the time of this video's release. So anyone who wants to grab a copy, the link is in the video description. Do so quickly. And it is happening because, David, you've smashed the Kickstarter target. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. It's uh, very nice to to have done that under these circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And you are an old hand at the Kickstarter business now, aren't you? It's not your first rodeo. No, it is the second time I've done it. And um it's actually quite interesting because the first time, never having done a Kickstarter of any kind before, um, I was very lucky because I'm, I'm good friends with uh, Chris Wilkins, um, Retro Fusion, who's done many books. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was my mentor. And um, so he took me through everything I needed to do step by step by step. Um, but when it came to the day of me actually launching it, launching my first Kickstarter, I couldn't get hold of him. It was a weekend and he'd gone away with his family. So anyway, I, I went ahead and launched the Kickstarter, and I put a target in of £25,000, which was the figure that I, I, I figured I'd need to, to get the book done. So when he came back on Monday, he said, oh, David, you've screwed it up. <laughs> and I said, what, what do you mean? He said, look, he said, I'm certain you'd get your twenty five grand." He said, but people, when they see twenty five as your, your target, they'll think, oh, he'll never reach that, so they won't back you. He said you should have put in a 10 or maybe 15 grand. And I said, oh, dear. And four days later, I'd got my 25 grand, <laughs> <laughs> which was unbelievable. It really, really was. There you, go. you mentored yeah. Chris on that occasion. But, <laughs> but you've hit the target again this time. Yeah. Um, and as you say, it's a nice system because if you don't hit the target, people get refunded. If you do, people are guaranteed to get the book in their hands as they are Absolutely. now. And this particular book, the new book, explores the murky world of the fall of Commodore in 1994 and what's happened since then. Is that correct? Is that the premise of the book? Yeah, the book starts um, from the day in, in New York at the auction uh, by the Bahamian liquidators of the uh, assets of Commodore and Amiga. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was actually in that courtroom on that day. So I think it's a good place to start. And basically, um, the story relates what happened. Escom bought it um, and how they mishandled everything. And like not much, not much longer than a year later, they themselves had gone bankrupt. They had partly funded Amiga Technologies, um, which was always going to be um, an iffy project because the person that was running it was Petro Dechenko, who I have a personal love-hate relationship. <laughs> that, that means I love to hate him <laughs> because he's the guy that actually stole our investors from us on that day in the auction in New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, he, he stole them a day before. But um, So obviously I, I have no regard for him. And besides, I've known him a long time and I know he's, he's a pretty incompetent guy. So him running Amiga Technologies was always going to be a disaster. Yeah, you you um, are at this point. You are summarising my line of questioning very well. So before we get too far into into that, yeah. um, just for anyone who doesn't know you, um, what is it that uniquely qualifies you to tell this story with such authority? Yeah, a very good question. In fact, um, yeah, everybody seems to think that you know I was the uh, the MD of Commodore UK. Which was, it, of course, was true, but um, I, I had a twelve and a half year career with Commodore, 
and I held executive positions all over the world. Um, I joined Commodore in 1983 um, as a salesman. Um, by uh, four years later, I was a, a sales and marketing director at Commodore UK as a result of the work that I'd done with Batman and stuff like that. And then a, a, a managing director or general manager job came vacant, which was in Commodore Electronics Limited, which is actually the holding company for the whole group. And they were based in Basel in Switzerland. And the job was to look after 35 countries where we did not have an operating office. Um, so I applied and, and for that and, and was promoted to that role, which I was there for two years. Um, I then uh, was made vice president of Commodore Inc., which is the sales company in the USA, because they'd been underperforming for many, many years. And I've been promising to kick ass. And, and that's what I did. I went over to um, uh, to the USA. I started there. I, uh, I, actually, I went to the winter CES in Las Vegas, where Commodore had a stand. And, and that was around about 5, 6, 7 of January 1992. Um, anyway, then I went to, after the show, I went to the, uh, I was based in Westchester, where all the, uh, the main offices of Commodore were in the States, uh, and took up the role as Vice President of Consumer Products. Um, and then uh, I was there about a year, and then I said, right, my job here for the moment is done. Um, and, and that's because I'd sorted out all the mess and got us trading, um, but didn't want, to, didn't want to stay any longer. Uh, it's a long story, which I won't go into right now. But anyway, I proved that my job was done for the moment, and I, I was going to go back to the States when we launched the 1200, which is very imminent. Uh, so I went back to the UK, and actually I was looking after the, the uh, international um, subsidiaries again um, for a little while. Um, but then I was forced into going back to the UK as MD because we got into such big financial trouble. And I, I, my reputation I, it was known that I was the person who actually built the UK business, and it was the most profitable business in the group. Sure. And with the company needing money and li liquid as much as possible, uh, I, I wasn't given a choice. I was made to go back to the UK, sure. which I didn't want. To, I didn't actually want to do. And people may or may not understand this, but there are two types of salespeople in the world. There are what you call hunters, and there are farmers. Now I'm a hunter. I like to be sent. Go here and sort it out and make business. Mm -hmm. Started from scratch. Just I love doing that. Once you build a business, you then become a farmer, and you're farming that business. And, and for me, that's boring. So I didn't really want to do that role. I actually turned the role down earlier on in, in my career, the UK one. But that's because I was at CEL in Switzerland, and I was loving every minute of it. So, um, but anyway, so so I think I'm uniquely placed. Twelve and a half years with Commodore. Um, and in all sorts of positions, uh, but mostly mostly at senior level. So I was dealing with with people like Medi Ali and Irving Guild all the time. Yeah, so you had direct access to these people uh, at the top. That's fascinating. And your history goes all the way back to the VIC-20, the Commodore 64, and then through to the Amiga. Uh, and this book is also co-authored by Trevor Dickinson. Um, how does he come into the story? What's his what's his yeah, well, to the book? Well, well, it's, it's, it's uh, again, another good, very good question. And the thing is, is that, to be honest with you, once I'd written the first book, Commodore, The Inside Story, um, I didn't think I had anything else left to say mm -hmm. because I'd, I'd, I'd related all my experiences 
uh, and everything in the book is absolutely true. Um, plus, I got other people from within Commodore to also write their stories. So there was a very good and deep perspective of Commodore from the inside. People kept saying, turned to me, David, the book is fantastic. When's the next one? When's the next one? When's the next one? <laughs> and, um, and I hadn't even given it any thought because I had no material. But what's happened is that in the last three or four years, uh, well, more, five years now, since uh, the Amiga 30 event, and I've met so many people, I am being told lots and lots and lots of stories about what happened after Commodore and how the trademarks and the IPs and the logos uh, all got, um, I guess, bandied around. So to finish the question that you asked me originally about Trevor, is that when I decided that this is a story that needs telling, I thought, well, I can't, I can't write the story unless people cooperate with me. Yeah. And um, so I wrote to as many people as I could find who were involved over that 25 years in various companies or as individuals in various things. And I wrote to them all and said, look, I'm writing a book and um, I want to interview you and possibly video you um about this whole period of time are you willing for me to do that and um the interesting thing is that uh, with that exception nobody has said no mm -hmm. which surprised me because some people i think are probably ashamed of things that happen but they've still said okay but anyway of course trevor being a on technologies and being very much a part of what's happening particularly in the technology sense so i wrote to him and he wrote back to me and he said david not only will i um Disobeyed, he said, but um, I've got a whole lot of material that I actually recorded from as it happened. Oh, wow. From the, okay. from the 25 years ago. I've got all this material. I, I wrote it all down. So he said, I've been thinking about re releasing a book myself on it. He said, but how about we co-author? Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So I thought, well, that is the most perfect thing because what, what we're, now what we're not planning to do, obviously we couldn't really start. I have a little bit, but I couldn't really start until we knew the Kickstarter was funded. Right, which it now is. It, it, fund, it was funded uh, five days ago. Um, but basically what will happen now is that I'm taking Trevor's notes and let's say it talks about Pios, which was one of the companies more or less immediately after Amiga Technologies. And I've got Trevor's writings on it. And I'm now in touch with people like Dave Haney was involved in Pios. Mm -hmm. I don't know if people, people even know that, but he was. He never got paid. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a good friend of mine, John Smith, who's probably my oldest friend, who, who I got working into Commodore uh, at the time. Well, he worked for Commodore the last five years. Uh, he was with Pios. So what are happening now is so we're looking at Trevor's notes, and then we're getting the comments made today, looking back, reflecting on what happened, and then adding the two together. Mm -hmm. So that you've got, uh, you've got a 25-year-ago story, and you've got today's story about that. So it brings it in today's perspective, yeah, which that, I think makes it much more interesting and certainly more current. Yeah, that's an absolute treasure trove then that you've got from Trevor because, you know, 25 years on, the memory can be a little bit um, <laughs> hard to dig into and, and, and uh, recover those memories. But to have it all written down at the time by Trevor, um, just to jog those memories, I'm sure they've probably uh, brought back a, a lot of stories to people who had long since forgotten them. Um, so that's fantastic. If you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about your own experiences um, back in 94 when Commodore um, fell, uh, right. if you like. Um, so back in 1994, just before it all happened, and you were the MD there, 
The, Am- the Amiga range in 94 was the 4000, the 600, the 1200, and the CD32 at that time. Yeah. Um, in your opinion, was that a lineup that could have actually saved Commodore with the right decisions, or should the range have looked different at that time in 94? Well, we had a we had our own plan for what we were going to do with it, right? Um, which um, which that was with Colin Pratt. But when, when I was forced back to the UK as MD, um, and and under the circumstances of us being in such big financial trouble, I said to Medi Ali, "Look, uh, you know, I can read a spreadsheet and all that kind of stuff, but that's not my forte. I'm, I'm a salesman and a marketing guy, and you need me to generate revenue." I need somebody to look after the financial side of things. So why don't I join join MD with Colin, who I didn't even know, but he was the financial, uh, I think he was the director. But anyway, he was, I just said, let us work together as co-MDs, which is what happened. And we hit it off immediately. It was a perfect um, partnership of, of ta- talents and skills and so on. And anyway, so Colin and I, at some, at some point, we said, why don't we take over this business? Because we know more about it than virtually anybody else, particularly the people who are running it now. So we sat down and we wrote a business plan. And the business plan, I mean, Colin is a genius when it comes to finances and stuff like that. It's just so good. And we wrote a business plan, which in 94-5 managed to get us $50 million in finance. Now, you try getting $50 million today. It's really, really hard. But we had such a solid business plan. Now, one of the things that that we put in our business plan, there's many, but one thing that I think caught people's attraction was that we decided that um, it wouldn't be a very long time before the current Amiga product uh, in the format that it was would have to end because new technology would take over and you can't be held back by forcing backwards compatibility with new technology. It just doesn't make any business sense. So what we decided to do is we said, let, how can we make the most of what we've got in the current lineup? Okay. So what we came up with, and um, I'm not quite sure who it was, whether it's me or Colin, I'm not sure, it doesn't really matter. But we came up with this idea that what we would have produced, and we actually did have produced, was we had a, a tower case produced. And that tower case was designed to be able to take every PCB from every model from 1,000 right through the range. And so if somebody wanted to upgrade from, say, a 500 to a 2,000, it's an example, they could go to their independent dealers. And that, would be, that was the only way we were going to do this was through the independent dealers who we know know their business. You'd never do it through Dixon's or Comet or Curry's or anybody like that. And the idea would be that somebody would say, right, here's my, here's my um, 500, um, I want to I want to move up to 2,000. And they would be able to take the motherboards out, put whatever peripherals match would fit into the tower case. And in support of that, we were going to actually sell PCBs on their own. Okay. Right? Which made really, really good sense. Yeah. And the idea, the idea was that um, you, it didn't matter what – uh, what Amiga you had, you could upgrade it through this tower system. We called that whole program Amiga Infinity. And mm-hmm. uh, we even had a piece of music written about it. So, um, <laughs> I, I mean, it was a very, very good plan because it meant that we could, by, by selling PCBs 
on their own. We're feeding this market who really care about it, not the people who walk in and buy something for their kids, but the real people, the people that are that are in our community now. Look how fantastic that community is these days. So we're on the right track with that, certainly as a concept. So that would have been, I guess, a short to medium term range. Yes. So you must have been thinking further ahead again. Yes. Yeah. Yes. What did you have in mind? Well, we, Commodore in, uh, in the US was working on a on a new project, which is a codenamed Ombre. Mm-hmm. And Ombre was a, the result of a, a very, very clever man called um, Dr. Ed Hepler. And he'd been working on this for, I don't know, 18 months, I think. <clears throat> and basically what, hap- what he designed, he had designed a, um, an HP risk-based core to which they added a 3D rendering engine, a blitter chip, a chunky planar, it had 5.1 surround sound stereo, which was state-of-the-art in 94.5. And this thing was absolutely knock your socks off. And I can tell you, he demonstrated it to me by, by calling together certain software to say this is what it will end up doing. And I can tell you, Neil, there is nothing on the market today that comes close to it, <laughs> not even close to it. So that was going to be our next step forward. Um, but, of course, uh, in their infinite wisdom, um, ESCOM, they never even looked at it. Yeah, they didn't even look at it, and I know that. I know that because when Colin and I registered to put a bid in for the assets, um, we got the right to do our due diligence. So Colin and I went over to Westchester, and uh, Colin is looking at all the books and all that stuff, obviously, and I'm looking at the technology and stuff like that. And and I know because ESCOM were there as well. But then I talked to the engineers. They didn't. They said they've never even come in and spoken to us, which is not surprising because they got rid of them all. They fired them all. They didn't take anybody. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Commodore was was effectively dead. I mean, you'd you'd obviously seen this coming so much so that you put a business plan together. So it wasn't a case of you came into the office one day and you had a shock that oh, Commodore, you know, they've gone bust. It's no. over. Uh, no. How long could you see the rating was on the wall? If I'm honest with you, Neil, and I'll always be honest, I knew that within a, within about eight or ten weeks of working at Commodore. Really? Yeah. And the reason I can tell you that is because um, I found out then that Commodore never, ever, ever had a business plan of any kind. Yeah. They didn't have one. They used to stumble from one crisis to the next. Right. When you say eight to ten weeks, do you mean back in '83? Yes, back oh, in wow. oh, that far back, yeah. Yes, and I'll tell you how I know, right? Because I was recruited specifically. My specific role was to sell business products, which in those days were pets, mm-hmm. into the retail market. Because my my expertise is the retail business. I've been in retail marketing all my life. And so they wanted somebody to sell pets into the retail market, which had not been done before. Now, I was, in order to do that, remember, I actually was, I just got back from Australia. So I'd been out of the UK for, you know, quite a while. So I said to them, look, first thing I need to do is to, I need to go around to all the retail stores, see what's happening out there, and then see who is going to be the best partner to go with first, which I did. Then I, when I was doing that, I realized that the best company to work with was a company called Lasky's. I don't know if you remember Lasky's, but they had 50... 54 stores and in 26 of them they had a store within a store called Micropoint and they were selling business 
orientated product. They weren't PCs because they weren't PCs went out then. They were the logical choice for me to um, uh, to sell into first. So I went I went straight to their office, met their managing director, and got a letter from him allowing me to go and interview all of the managers of the Micropoint stores. I mean, all I was going to do was to sell pre-sell into them, of course. But I just said to him, look, I'm doing some research and got the letter right. Now I I I did 24 of the 26 stores. And I, I was in store number 24. I've got two left to do. When I got a phone call from Commodore, from the girl that actually interviewed me and then put me forward to get hired by the M MD, she said, David, do you remember when I told you in our interview that things happened really quickly in Commodore? Yes. She said, well, <clears throat> you're the rising star at the moment because um, our sales of the 64 is going crazy. And um, we need somebody to look after all the major retail stores. And with your background, you're obviously the choice. So really come straight back and take that new role on. And then I found out that Commodore internationally never, ever had enough pets to be able to sell into a new market. <laughs> so I was recruited for no reason because I had no business plan. You see what I mean? Yes. I mean, it's, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah. I yeah. mean, you would have thought that it, over time it would have bred a, a kind of resentment against the upper management, but actually that management changed several times over. So it must have just been a constant churn of resentment and then hope and then resentment yeah. and then hope. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that used to happen, of course, to, to um, add a credence to my st statement about they never had a business plan is that you'd think that a leading edge technology company would be doing lots of research to find out what the market wants. You know, you'd think it'd come to people like me at the front line and say, right, what's in demand? What do people want? What can we sell? How much should it be? And all this sort of stuff. Never, ever, ever did that happen. But what would happen is that suddenly I'd get 10,000 plus four shipped into my warehouse. <laughs> sell these. Now, in God's name, what are the plus four? I mean, it's the most ridiculous thing. That's an example of, of, of them not having a business plan. They didn't know what to do. And at every time they changed to a manager, you know, at a senior level, they went, they'd go around to the engineers and say, what are you working on? Oh, I'm doing this. Oh, no, we don't want that anymore. Take, stop doing that. Do this. So Commodore was full of unfinished projects. And in fact, in the book, in the first book, Beth Richard, she was the lead engineer working on the CD1200 project, which, of course, never got launched because we went under before that was finished. Her chapter in my book tells about all the projects that they were working on never got launched. And it's quite an interesting chapter just in itself. But anyway, the, other, the second reason why I knew that Commodore, and I've known from a long time that Commodore was destined to go bust, is that the other, the other cardinal sin, Commodore, with an, as an international company with branches all over the world, they never, ever did any external auditing. Oh, right. <laughs> never. <laughs> never. So they were reliant on the, the, the MDs and the general managers reporting their figures and reliant on them being honest. And yet the money never matched up. And I'll give you a really perfectly good example of that. Another guy that I, I love to hate, he's passed away now, it was a guy called Bernard Van Tienen. He was the general manager of the Netherlands, right? Mm hmm he used to boast to us, every, we'd meet once or twice a quarter for uh, general manager meetings. He used to boast to us every time, every, at the end of every quarter, when he was 
had not reached his target, he would write invoices. He would put he would put product on a truck and send it on a journey for five days. Take it out of the out of the quarter and record the figures. Get his bonus and his commission. And five days later, take it back and stock again every single quarter without fail. Now, if you add to that, uh, Colin and I, right at the very end, we had to go to. Um, Secomodo UK was not part of the group's auction holdings. We were UK limited groups, entity all on our own. Right. And, and Colin, uh, uh, Commodore Holland was as well. And there came a time when we had to go and talk to the liquidator of the Dutch uh, uh, Commodore. And um, nothing bad. It was something that we just needed to talk about how we were going to. We shared an IP, I think it was. So Colin and I went over to Holland to meet this guy. And. Um, he, had to, he actually sued Bernard Van Tienen and he sued Petro Dechenko big, for big bucks. But I'll come back, come back onto that later. Anyway, while we're talking to him, he said, oh, by the way, gentlemen, what do you think of this? And, and he pushed a piece of paper across the desk to us. We looked at this piece of paper and it was the expenses put in by Bernard Van Tienen and it was for this um, establishment called Yab Yum, which turned out to be the most high-profile brothel in Amsterdam, <laughs> right? This expenses, get this, $275,000. <laughs> That's where my damn Amiga money went. Was he doing That's spending a, it there? Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you have to laugh for this. But you can, now you can see. Well, how can it, it was obvious, wasn't it? <laughs> it was obvious. Armed with that knowledge, it was obvious where this was going. And so with that background, it kind of brings us up now to the start of your new book. You mentioned it starts at the auction. And yep. in fact, it perhaps starts just 36 hours before the auction happened yeah. and the rug was pulled up, out from under your feet. Just explain yes. what happened there. Yeah, in our 50, I mentioned earlier, we raised $50 million. And we, we, we were working with a company called um, Coopers and Lybrand. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of them, very famous they're like Ernst and Young and that kind of thing. But these guys that we work with, they were specialists in managing buyouts. Um, so anyway, what they they pulled together a consortium of investors. We had we had um, three high wealth individuals. We had one guy who represented a consortium of investors, and between them, that that raised twenty five million dollars. The other twenty five million dollars came from we found ourselves a um, a Chinese manufacturing company. They were called New Star Electronics. And they had, right up to that time, and I think even during that time, they were ripping off Sega and Nintendo products and selling them into China without paying any licenses, of course. They had been told by the Chinese government that they have to get legit because the time was right for them. And we all know what's happened to China since. So it made sense. So they were going to put in the other $25 million. Now, if you think about it, that is the most perfect arrangement of, of um, financial support because if you've got your manufacturer who's low cost who's actually a 50 percent shareholder he's not going to rip you off he's going to make sure that you know you do well so it was absolutely the most perfect scenario now what happened was that um uh, petro dechenko under orders of, of um uh, i'm pretty sure it was manfred schmidt from, uh, who was the md the owner of escom um went to uh, New Star Electronics while we were all there in doing our due diligence. Um, and uh, more or less said to them, look, you know, don't, don't go with the 
British guys, come with us. We, you don't have to pay 25 million. We'll give it to you for 5 million, which was a complete lie anyway. Um, so they, they pulled the rug from us because uh, they decided that, that the better bet was with the ESCOM bid because it cost them less money. Obviously, they got screwed because mm. ESCOM didn't do the, give them anything. Now, that meant that we were left with $25 million. And people say to us, well, hang on now. If you got $25 million and the, the auction went for $14 million, why didn't you bid? And we said, well, didn't anybody think about the reality? Do you think that if we were the new the new Commodore, the new Amiga, whatever we call ourselves, that anybody who supplied components to us was going to give us any credit? They'd all just been burnt big time, owed loads of money all around. I said, there's no way that they would give us credit terms. So Colin, being the fantastic financial genius that he is, he worked out that we would have to pay our way for a period of time, and we worked out it would be seven months and two weeks to the day. Right. Right? Now, we reckon that by then we would have earned the right to, to exist on credit terms. Sure. But in order for us to pay for that, we needed $50 million. And so to do that, so, I mean, we could, yes, we could have, we could have bid $15 million and bought the assets, but then we would have, we would have gone broke. I mean, think about it. It's, 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 you know, nobody thinks about how you run a business, what it costs, and yeah. to support it, and so on and so forth. So we, we very reluctantly had to say we can't bid because we, we know that we would have lost our investors, their $25 million, and neither Colin or I are that kind of people. We, we just couldn't do it. Yeah, and I think it was $14 million that it went to ESCOM for. Yeah, 14 that's right. In the end, which just went to show what their intentions were, really. They hadn't given any thought to having that extra cash to actually continue with the Amiga range to evolve it to create new product. They obviously had other ideas or, or perhaps they were just stupid I don't, I don't know which one it was but i mean well, as we get further I, down I, the line there I, are stories like for example when it passed a gateway i've heard that the reason they wanted it was for the patent for the two button mouse just just for that um not for anything else so was it turning into um a smash and grab for the patents for those companies well, you know? that, that's what ultimately happened but to go back to escom first of all we said to ESCOM, right there in the, in the auction, why don't you let us have the Amiga? You, you don't want the Amiga. That's not what you're after. Yeah. Why, why can't we just buy the Amiga from you, right? They weren't interested. But I think that was just spite. Mm. I, I don't think there was any rationale in that, and, and I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, what I think that they wanted and what would have made very good sense for them, they were PC manufacturers. What they wanted was the CBM name. Because at one time, CBM was as powerful as IBM. So what I thought they were going to do was they were going to, um, because it was a very tough market in the low end of the PC business, I thought that they'll do is they'll have a higher spec PC, which they will badge CBM, can therefore justify a higher price for it and make a better margin. That, to me, made perfectly good business sense. And we would never have got into that market, but had we been forced to, that's what we would have done. It makes perfectly good sense, right? Mm -hmm. But um, uh, they certainly, they had no plans for Amiga whatsoever. And then, then right at the very end, um, it came to the point where Commodore UK, we kept on trading for, uh, I think it was just about 14 months. And it came to the time when we had to declare bankruptcy because we just, we, were, we kept, as every other one of the other subsidiaries went, and they all went really quickly, we bought all their stock and carried on trading. 
But the time came and we had to declare bankruptcy. But before that, Colin and I went over to see Manfred Schmidt of ESCOM. And we said, look, Manfred, we think that you should buy Commodore UK, Commodore Business Machines UK Limited, as a going concern. And they said, why, why would I want to do that? And we said, well, first of all, because we've got a fantastic business and there's no, you won't lose any of that business. We've got all the distribution. We've got everything all in place. Secondly, because of the way that, that and I'll need to explain this to your, to your audience, the way that, that businesses work, um, we had a, a £6 million worth of, of um, uh, tax credits that we could have given him, right? Yeah. And so, therefore, that would have meant that if he'd, if he'd have bought Commodore UK and kept trading as Commodore UK, changed the name, but still kept trading as Commodore UK, um, he could have probably done about 18 or 20 million pounds worth of business before he had to pay any tax. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a pretty attractive proposition, right, in itself. And um, he said, all right, he said, he said, but I'll only buy Commodore UK if you two, Colin and I, if you work for me. And we didn't have any intention of working for him. <laughs> and, so, and Colin said, sorry, with all due respect, but um, we don't want to work for you. And he said, well, in that case, I'm not going to buy it. And in that case, you've now got to go back to all your staff and tell them that they're all going to be out of a job because you wouldn't work for me. And then Colin said, that's exactly why we don't want to work for you. Yeah, yeah, the prime example yeah. right there. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Now, just to get back to this, people will say, well, if you're such a profitable business, how come you got £6 million worth of tax credits? Right? This is how it works. For those who, let, me, let me educate the uneducated. <laughs> right? So let's say in a normal set of circumstances, and I'm just picking figures from midair, let's say I would buy an Amiga 500 from, from my parent company and I'd pay $200 for it. Right? We would then have to warrant it. We'd have to um, market it. We'd have to uh, put margin in for the dealers, and then and then and so on and so on. And, and let's say we sold it for four hundred dollars, right? And then what? Uh, uh, we'd make our margin on that. Now let's just say we'd, we're really successful, and we start to need to owe to pay tax. At the switch of a stroke of a pen, our our transfer price changed from two hundred dollars and selling it for four hundred to paying four hundred for it. So that the, the, the corporation made the 400, we lost on everyone we sold. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you build up tax credits. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. You just you just change the transfer. <laughs> it's an old trick. Not supposed to do it. And um, it's too late now. They can't do anything about it. <laughs> but that's how it, that's how it worked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of the people that you've mentioned, um, and no doubt that will crop up in the book. Uh, and the stories that you'll share. Um, I'm assuming you have a, a good proofreader checking for libel against anything that you, you perhaps say in the book. Uh, well, the interesting thing, as you see, is that um, Trevor's reporting basically what was reported at the time. Mm -hmm. I, I'm doing some slight amendments because there's a couple of things he's put. I started going through it recently, a couple of things in there which are not right, and he's asked me just to correct them. But the main thing is that what I'm reporting is what other people tell me. Sure, sure. So, so like, uh, it, it, like every chapter in, in my first book, it came a different person, they're accredited with it, and if there's anything wrong in it, I printed what they sold, what they told me. Yeah. I'm not liable. And, and, but to be, honest, to be honest with you, it's, it's easier to, just to write the truth. Sure. It's just so easy, you know. Um, 
So touch wood, I've had, I've had one person complain about something really minuscule. I don't know what it was. And I, and I just said, is it worth, because they said, would I reprint the book? Oh, get lost, you know. I mean, and it was reported, it was a chapter that somebody else had written, not me. Mm-hmm. And, and this person said he was, it was, it was said something bad about him, which wasn't true. I said, you've gone sort of that with the guy that provided me with the chapter, because it's nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. I, I made a promise. You write something, and I will print what you write, good, bad, or indifferent. I will, I will represent you honestly, and I can sleep at night every night knowing I did that. Yeah. So if certain people came forward, like let's just use Medi Ali for an example, uh, and said, yeah. "I want to set the record straight. Here's my story," you would have that conversation with him. Oh, absolutely. With with Medi, I mean, I, all the stories of Medi are from me, mm-hmm. uh, and and I know, and hand on heart. I know exactly what happened, and when you read the book, you can you can feel the passion in it, yeah. because you know it was it was so unbelievable. And in fact, I'm, what I'm really I'm really upset about is that I thought of something uh, in the last couple of years that I wished I'd thought about when I wrote the book. People have said to me, "What's it like? What was it like working for Mediali?" And I just used to say, you know, what it was. But now I, there's a word for it. I think I was under medication. <laughs> With an age in there. I mean, that's a bloody good word, isn't it? I wish I thought of it. I, I, I would have put that as a chapter, the title of the chapter under medication. Yeah, take your medication. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, there's a there's obviously a murky period after Escom and Gateway, and I'm really looking forward to reading all about that in the book as you pick it apart and, and tell us exactly what happened. But despite all of this. In the present day, the Amiga story could still be portrayed as a triumph in the face of adversity because for the Amiga community, we're still using them, we're still developing for them, we're still celebrating them. Does your book, is it going to capture that aspect of it as well? It, it absolutely is, which is why, I, you know, I mean, I absolutely I love, it sounds like it's a big header, but I love the title that I came up with for the book because it does capture. There was a moment in time when there were people that were just like vultures clutching at the, at the carnage of, of what was left of, of, of Commodore and grabbing bits as they could and so on and so forth. But through, in spite of all of that, through all that adversity, and, and remember, if you were a developer and you started doing something and somebody said, I'm going to slap a lawsuit on you if you keep developing that because that belongs to me, you can imagine that was terrible. Um, and, and as I said, there's actually there's a, law, a lawsuit still current from that period of time. But throughout all of it, and this is how I get the whole um, crux of the story, is that I'm going to go through every every little every little bit of detail that I can about who bought what, why they bought it, how it went wrong, all this sort of stuff. In spite of all of that, there have been some incredible developments brought forward, and especially, I mean, I'm I'm in love with the Vampire Four standalone mm-hmm. product. It's it's probably the best technology I've seen since Commodore, and and. There are others as well. I'm not going to leave anybody out, but that just made really great. It's a good title mm-hmm. for Vultures of Vampires. Well, it's a fabulous title. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so the whole idea is that we're going to celebrate and applaud all of those people who are working on, on new products and systems today because they all deserve it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there is a happy ending to the story. And the more you talk about it, the more this the, the history lends itself really well to, to a book, really. A chapter for each episode, each company that bought it, you know, up until the present day and the vampires. Um, what's next for Amiga? I mean, I don't think any of us are expecting it to rise up and take on, you know, the computer world and the IBM PCs. But 
What, what, what do you think is going to happen next for Amiga? Well, for me, I think, um, you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but um, for me, um, what I'm witnessing um, is I'm witnessing things that are becoming so miniaturized now. And, and the Vampire Force standing is a perfect example of that. I mean, it's got a PCB, what, about the size of a mobile phone? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you've seen it. I have, yeah. But what that, in my opinion, what that will do, that will lend itself to, to be integrated into other technologies because it's so small, it can fit into things. And one of the things that I would love to see happen, and certainly if I had the funds, I would be getting involved in it, I'd like to see um, the standalone Vampire 4 uh, as an internal product in a, a uh, hi-fi stacking system. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that you, so that you, you, with a little modification, you integrate it into the home your, your smart TV. You can download, you can stream games, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you, and they, then you are achieving the ultimate goal that it has always been, and that's to get a computer into the living room. Mm, so a media center as the hub of your entertainment in the living absolutely, room. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Now, let me reflecting on that. Another part of my business plan way, way back in 1945 was I was going to sell the license to the CD32 to the Japanese hi-fi manufacturers as a part of their system because in those days they had CDs. We didn't even have um, DVDs and Blu-rays. Mm -hmm. but, you, but you could have put that in, in, in change the design of it so that it's a front loader, which it should have been always anyway, I think, from the beginning. Um, and then sell it to Toshiba and, and all those people, just to license it to them. They would bring the cost to manufacture down, which would, you'd benefit from as well. So that was going to be part and parcel of our business plan because nobody's done anything with it. And I, I, I just felt, why should I give my secrets away? But now, after all these years, <laughs> when, when you see Vampire 4, it, it lends itself to it so easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Well, David, um, good luck with the book and with the Kickstarter. I've, I've backed it. I've backed the hardback edition. So I'm really looking forward to, to that happening. You have to make sure you write it now, sir. <laughs> uh, uh, no question about that. As you can tell, I'm, I'm right into it. Uh, I'm, I'm one of these guys that I can only do things that I really believe in. But once I believe in something, I give it my all. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm very, very passionate. I, I love the 12 and a half years. I mean, I, I'd still be there today if they hadn't gone, but because I, I loved it so much. Um, no, I, 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 give, I give good value for money. And anybody who bought the first book will tell you it's a quality product. And um, that's what I intend to deliver again the second time round. So please back it over the next five, six days, please. Yes, please do. Well, less time than that, in fact. By the time I've edited this up and got it out, the campaign will be coming to its last few days, if not its last day. So quickly click, go and check the book out. I don't think we're in any doubt whatsoever that David um, is not the right person to tell this story. He's uniquely positioned to tell it. So go and grab the book. David, I, I hope that sounds good to you. Your marketing skills are rubbing off on me here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope so. I mean, I, I just, I, I'm one of these people, I just want to leave a legacy behind me that I'm proud of and that my sons are proud of. And what more can you ask, you know? Perfect. And on that, on that note, thank you very much, sir. No, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it, Neil. Appreciate it.
If you enjoy my content and would like to support The Cave while receiving a completely ad-free experience and access to releases one week before they go public, then visit patreon.com forward slash retro man cave and join the official cave dwellers. Thank you for your support. Thank you.